Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which raconteur, bonjella and eau de toilette Jeremy Hardy thrusts the stiletto of wit into the soft underlay of carpets. This week, how to hand the world on to the next generation. Good evening. Tonight, and not for the first time, I am joined emotionally and professionally by two people who over the years have become like children to me because I've ruined both their lives, Debbie Isaac and Gordon Kennedy. Hello. Now, Debbie, since we last did a series together, you've become a mother. How do you juggle your roles, both as writer, director, actor, and parent? Career girl of today who needs a conditioner she can rely on, and knackered old zombie who smells of sick. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy, I haven't had much sleep. What was that? I was just saying you had a baby. Oh, yeah. Well, you have to organise yourself in such a way that... Oh, God, she's in the car. Hang on, I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> OK. Now, Gordon, how many kids have you got? Uh, two by my wife, Susan, and one from a previous existence. <laughs> and does that one regard Susan as her mother? Yeah, but I was a feral during that existence. I'm a bit strict and distant in that kind of King of Siam way. Maybe get Susan to make some play clothes out of curtains. That was the sound of music. Oh, of course it was. <laughs> well, get her to do something that might soften your heart. It has been hardened by grief and haggis suppers. I will. Thank you, old friend. Not at all. <laughs> now on with the show. Now that my daughter is 11, I find myself observing people with their babies and toddlers and thinking, oh, God, I wasn't like that, was I? Coming back to London on a train recently, I was struck by the loudness of middle-class parents. This father opposite bellowed. Would you like some juice? And? Do you know buffet is a French word? <laughs> we went camping in France. Do you remember? <laughs> and what's French for camping? It's Gumping, isn't it, Giles? <laughs> and I realised it was being said not for the benefit of the child, but for the benefit of the other passengers. And there was I sitting alongside my 11-year-old, who was quietly staring out the window, stifling her boredom into a tight little ball of resentment that will explode in later years. <laughs> and I wondered why this new parent imagined I'd be even slightly impressed that he had done two years of this. I remember the production you get to put on as a new parent... The baby care aisle of chemist or supermarket is your props department and your chance to show how much you care. It matters to you that your baby stays fresh and dry. It doesn't occur to you that adolescent girls are a lot more worried about absorbency than is your carefree stinky charge. <laughs> You're impressed that he can projectile vomit, but you forget that a teenage girl can do that while turning her head 360 degrees. <laughs> You know that sometimes he cries just because he's tired or disoriented, but you forget that he will start doing it again in his late 30s. Now, <laughs> oh, Debbie, you're back. Is she all right? Who? Oh, God, I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> I suppose that sometimes parents of toddlers are still excited by the added clout of being a parent, especially if the stigma of not having kids was starting to get to you. The word childless never appears in print without the word desperate in front of it. <laughs> Moreover, people need to be needed. That's why goldfish are the ultimate pet. They all die if you have the telly up too loud or look at them in a funny way. <laughs> Cats are rotten pets because they are self-sufficient. If you fall down the stairs and break your back and look pleadingly towards the phone in the hope that your faithful friend will nudge it towards you, the cat will merely stare at you in a slightly annoyed way, wondering how hungry it will have to get before it eats your face. <laughs> We need our kids to need us. We call them dependents, but we're as dependent as they are. 
How'd they be your back? Is she okay? Yeah, yeah. They just took the stereo. I've left her with reception. <laughs> we'll be done in about 20 minutes, won't we? Well, do me best. The British act as though children are still a new concept to us. We're either hiding our kids away or flaunting them like slightly soiled goods. I blame the Reformation. My evidence is that in Catholic countries you can take your kids into bars. Now, there are certainly upsides to England being Protestant. The Huguenots had somewhere to run to. And for some reason, Catholic countries have an alarming tendency to become fascist. Hitler himself was a Catholic, although being a bit of a vegetarian meant he was missing the all-important guild part. <laughs> Vegetarians are not only smug, but also weak and listless, so they can become confused and irrational. <laughs> One great advantage noticeable in Catholic countries is that people love kids. This might be because they have no choice, having less birth control, but whatever the reason, Italy, Spain and Ireland are all more family-friendly than England. Austria I know less about, but I'm wary because it appears not to have learned the lessons of the 20th century. <laughs> Holland is both Protestant and Catholic, but the uptight ones who founded apartheid in South Africa were the Dutch Reformed Church, who were prods, so I assume that it is the Catholics who are relaxed about soft drugs and the presence of children. <laughs> I'm not sure of that, but Holland is below sea level anyway, so test results get skewed by other factors. <laughs> Anyway, Italy, France, Spain and Ireland are an impressive lineup of child-friendly places and only two of them ever went completely fascist. <laughs> now, uh, Debbie, earlier I asked you and Gordon to use your dramatic skills to explore what went wrong in English history to leave us so child-unfriendly. Yes, we've been workshopping this scenario in which Gordon plays Henry VIII so that I can interview him and really get behind why England broke from Rome, leaving us with a situation in which we can't take our kids into pubs. Now, do we know how Henry VIII would have sounded? Well, nothing like the royal dialect of today. No Achtungs or Himmels. <laughs> no, this was pre-Hanoverian. Also, vowel sounds were less distorted because the inbreeding hadn't really kicked in. <laughs> and Henry was an enormous syphilitic drunk, so he'd probably have sounded like Gordon. Great. <laughs> Good. Well, uh, well, off you go. Right, so... Hello, I'm joined by King Henry VIII. Now, Henry, you're the King of England. This is pre-act of union, so we're not talking about Britain here. Now, you've had a hit record with green sleeves. I'm interested in why you don't build a recording studio under Hampton Court, embrace family life and settle down. Tell us why you've contacted Pope Clement asking for an annulment. Well, obviously I'm seen as the villain in all this. I guess I'm too selfish to form a long-standing commitment, but I've met someone I want to be with and the Pope is standing in my way. But what about the Vatican's rules about divorce? Well, the church is some way out of date. I mean, you come from the end of the 20th century. And obviously, by that time, Rome will allow divorce, birth control and gay marriage. <laughs> but don't forget that these are the Middle Ages. In a way, I'm ahead of my time. What do you think of Martin Luther? Well, I know he's someone who nailed his feces to the door of the cathedral. <laughs> feces? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I thought it was a bit weird. <laughs> but you'd like to see Protestantism in England. I'd like to see a church of England. We need to strip away some of the mystery surrounding religion, the relics and icons. You don't think we should venerate objects? No, I think we should raffle them. <laughs> you'd like to see less of the blood of Christ and more... Lemon curd. Yes, yes. Well, you'll enjoy seeing all the iconography and graven images stripped from church walls and replaced with giant thermometers, but that's for the future. <laughs> Let's look at your marriage. 
What if I told you that you'd go through all this trauma only to do it all again in a couple of years? You'll have a trial separation, which involves a brief trial and a very major separation. <laughs> well, people move apart. But look, Henry, you're just going to keep running out on women until one outlives you. You're searching for something that isn't there. Mm. Would you rather have someone who becomes a friend, who's always there for you, or a succession of newer models impressed with power who are prepared to accept a bloated old slob just because he's a king or Michael Winner? <laughs> Marriage has to be worked at. You'd like a work ethic, wouldn't you? Suppose. Well, start here and now. Call the Pope and tell him you're going to make a go of things. Uh, I suppose so. One sec, Catholic. And curtain. Excellent. Well done, both of you. Thanks. Well, I am a classically trained Catholic. <laughs> Splendid. Well, clearly our society has a dysfunctional attitude to children. As I say, we use them as a status symbol. But when women carrying babies go begging on the underground, they get accused of using them as props. Where are they supposed to leave them? The beggars crash at Oxford Circus? <laughs> and the bigots who slag these women off aren't concerned that they're having to support their babies on asylum vouchers and their alternative to begging is staring at the wall of their B&B all day. And as if the British are perfect parents. I mean, the British don't drag kids screaming around supermarkets or shout at them for enjoying themselves, smack them or send them to boarding school or dump them with an East European au pair who's here to learn English and doesn't mind doing all the ironing and not being paid. <laughs> for a short while in the late 20th century, we began to think more in terms of children having rights and needs. But there is now a backlash to the effect that we've all become overprotective. The movement to make us less careful about our children is led by one-man organisations called things like the Institute of Letter-Headed Paper, who, su <laughs> who supply pundits for Woman's Hour and any questions. Now, Debbie, I believe you've been reading some childcare advice from this school of thought. That's right. I've just read They've Got to Learn Somehow by Freddie Franco, who is Professor of Maidopology at the University of His House. <laughs> is that children who are not allowed to play with knives or take business cards from Thai modelling agencies are being hopelessly coddled. Mm. He says you should leave toddlers alone in cars initially for short periods of an hour or so, building up as they get used to it, to the point where you can park overnight on a slope with a handbrake off and they'll be fine. <laughs> Some people wax lyrical about the days when they played out for hours on end in hills and streams, coming home for a glass of barley water and then heading off again to look for tadpoles in bomb craters. But I think those people need to face the fact that their parents didn't care about them. <laughs> A generation ago, people had huge families on the expectation that two or three kids would die of diphtheria, one would get lost, one they'd just forget to feed, <laughs> another they couldn't afford to feed so would send to live with someone who's believed to be an aunt but no one was really sure, <laughs> and the three survivors would provide grandchildren, which was their only function anyway. Police officers would go to schools to warn kids not to get into strange cars. A squirrel or a big man in tights would tell them not to throw themselves under strange cars. A nurse checked for nits. We were told not to swing on our chairs. And that was it. Children who told their parents they'd been molested would get replies like, Nonsense, dear. He's a man of the church. And, well, it's only during term time. You can come home at Easter. <laughs> Yes, you can argue that most abuse happens in the home, but one of the reasons why that truth is still emerging is that we've only just accepted it happens at all. There is something suspect about the mania to expose paedophiles, especially when you remember the uproar that happened when social workers started to rescue abused kids from their fathers. The nation bristled, and there was a tacit mood of, if an Englishman can't abuse his own children, well, whose children can he abuse? <laughs> 
But at least now the danger is acknowledged. True, the anti-paedophile protesters would save more lives by stopping traffic, but that's another danger ignored by those who think it's appalling that children get taken to school. Years ago, suggestions such as wait until the road is clear and don't cross between parked cars made sense. There were hardly any cars. Now, neither piece of advice can possibly be followed. A child today knows that you kind of have to make a dash for it and hope the speed bumps will hold the bastards long enough to give you a bike. <laughs> of course, there'd be fewer cars on the road and fewer accidents if all kids went to school a short distance from home, but all government policy is working against that. New Labour is abolishing comprehensive education by increasing selection and specialisation and giving the private sector a say in how our children should be educated. So what will the business community teach our kids? In chemistry, they'll learn the natural chemical constituents of water, hydrogen, oxygen, paint, slurry, fertiliser, shite and nuclear waste. In biology, they'll learn that the natural diet of the cow is other cow with a side order of sheep guts. And in physics, they'll learn the extended warranty theory of matter, whereby all molecules spontaneously implode just after the manufacturer's warranty expires. Does anyone believe businessmen want kids to know more about the world? When I was young, BBC Schools programme showed us how the daily routines of children varied around the world. This will be increasingly discouraged. The sponsors won't want British kids to see their overseas contemporaries saying, My name is Yi. I am 12 years old. Every day I get up at 5am and make your trainers. <laughs> Our local education action zone has got shell on it. A heartwarming reminder of home for the children of Nigerian exiles. A programme of after-school hangings will surely sort out any kids with disruptive or poetic tendencies. Facts coming through. Here we go. Um, dear sir, we are writing to protest at the suggestion of a link between Shell and the Nigerian regime of the late General Sani Abacha. It is outrageous to suggest that a military dictator of his standing would have consorted with an oil company such as Shell. As someone who has worked as public relations consultant for the general, I can assure you that Shell representatives only came to the house a few times and the conversation was mainly chit-chat and some light petting. Yours faithfully, <laughs> Tom Pinochet, Marketing Director, Woodhead and Buckfinger Communications. I'll send him a signed photo. <laughs> Education is decreasingly about the enrichment of lives and increasingly about pigeonholing children as young as possible to suit the requirements of business. Middle-class children are being prepared for managerial and marketing futures. Skilled working-class kids will work on computers. The bulk of kids will be funneled into call centres and the leftovers will be arrested. <laughs> and it's easy to see why so many private companies want to buy their way into the lives of our youth. Fashion companies, for whom brand loyalty is everything, are similar to religions in that they want to enslave the young as early as possible. Because capitalist production involves not diversity but uniformity, the only way of telling clothes apart is to give them names. We have lost sight of the fact that cats and dogs should have names and trousers and underpants shouldn't. <laughs> trousers shouldn't be called Tommy or Calvin. They are lifeless fabric and can't hear. <laughs> People worry that they might have bought fake Calvins. How can you counterfeit knickers? <laughs> if you can see them, they are real. <laughs> are you going to hold them up to the light and look for a watermark? But teenagers are not only prime target consumers and barometers of taste, they are also at the beginning of their working lives. Small wonder that schools are seen as fertile and positively horny ground for private sponsorship. 
Let's listen to this government video produced to attract private businesses into schools. What have you done today to make you feel proud? Hello, I'm Alistair McGreedy, a director of Concertina UK. And I'm Hilary Packett, junior underling and token bint at the Department of Subsidy. <laughs> you know, many of today's schools are failing. Failing to be the luxury flats of the future. <laughs> 30 children crammed into a reception room really only big enough for one graphic designer. But a school isn't just an apartment block in waiting. It's a marketplace, a focus group and a recruiting office. Clothing firms will love our new sports academies. Look at the success of St. Nike's Academy for keeping troubled kids shagged out by running all the time. And let's not forget that teenagers are our conscience. Sponsoring schools shows that, as well as encouraging tyrants to crush their opponents so you can plunder their natural resources and destroy the environment, you have a caring side. And wholesome snack manufacturers like Walkers have shown their passion for literacy with a Books for Schools scheme, teaming up with News International to make sure that every 11-year-old in Britain can read a packet of Monster Munch and a Sun headline. But hang on, doesn't all this cost us business people a lot of money, Hillary? Not really. We welcome contributions, however small. Don't forget we're a big tent government. We'll spend millions on one big tent in Greenwich. <laughs> money we'd like to spend on schools because we're giving it to you. With public and private sectors working together, we can build a new future and convert our existing one into flats. <laughs> Corporate donations are just PR. Supermarkets can always use a friend in government. The Sainsbury dynasty miraculously has a lord in government, although in the interests of propriety, he no longer involves himself in shelf-stacking till work or anything like that. <laughs> Actually, I'm sure that's why some supermarkets sell out to others. You can imagine an Earl of Summerfield, but hardly Viscount Quicksave. <laughs> Fortunately for business, the government is desperate to hand public services over to the private sector and in doing so, break the unions. If the teachers were awake enough to see it, they are probably the only group of workers capable of bringing the country to a standstill. If the whole country had to mind our own kids indefinitely, the teachers could get anything. Fair pay, less form-filling, plastic bullets, anything. <laughs> they could bring down the arse-kissers charter that is his performance pay, stop privatisation and abolish selection. This government has done more to encourage selection than any since the war, but by some extraordinary piece of doublethink, imagines that selective and non-selective schools can coexist. Or they can, it's just that one ends up with all the educational resources and the other has excellent antenatal care and a guns amnesty. <laughs> as well as promoting hierarchy and inequality, the government is promoting division by encouraging religious schools. I've always believed that religion should come as the result of a blinding light, a nervous breakdown or a prison sentence. <laughs> rather than being something that belongs on a blazer or a blackboard. But the faith communities, as religions are now called, see scripture as something that needs to be injected not long after the MMR vaccine. <laughs> Once children are old enough to suss that because I said so is not a reasoned argument, they're susceptible to all kinds of questioning impulses. We don't yet know whether the government wants failing religions to be handed over to private companies and turned into wine bars, but those who want children to be segregated according to their parents' real or professed creeds claim that religious schools teach pupils to respect other religions. 
but I am slightly sceptical about the idea that the best way to promote understanding is for children never to meet one another. <laughs> Still, they get very good exam results in Northern Ireland. Shame about the bitter sectarian hatred, but you can't have everything. <laughs> and at least in Britain, we have greater diversity of faith. Parents can choose from a rich variety of possible ways to isolate their children from others. If kids do get better results in religious schools, a lot of that will be to do with family support. The family is falling apart in Western culture, except among people in the Hindu, Muslim and Jewish faiths, in which the family is under less strain because they don't have Christmas. <laughs> of course, Muslims are experiencing something of a backlash at the moment, and people will imagine that Islamic schools are terrorist training camps where they have suicide car boot sales instead of fakes. But Islam is no weirder than Christianity. Both are just Judaism with the jokes taken out. <laughs> Rather than extending the same power the Christian church has to other faiths, we should be taking that power away. It's not a matter of choice. School should be about education, not indoctrination. That's my belief, and I don't have to justify it. I believe it, and that makes it true. <laughs> Although people do tell me religions teach the difference between right and wrong, and I agree with that because I'm an atheist, and I just don't get this right and wrong thing at all. <laughs> I'll just smack someone in the face, and they'll be like, Ow, you bastard! And I'll be like, What? What did I do? <laughs> oh, hang on, Jeremy, we've got a fax coming through. Oh, who's it from? It's from... God. Ah, I better read that. Uh, <clears throat> Dear Mr. Hardy, thanks for your comments on religion. Religion has been the bane of my existence. <laughs> Do these people imagine I need them and their robes and rituals and letters of indignation to defend me? Anyone who's seen a plague of locusts knows I've got big enough bollocks to defend myself. <laughs> Excuse the language, but I can sire a child from a long way away. <laughs> now, I know I'm not a perfect father. I was always trying to be in too many places at once, and, you know, if I'd listened more... Well, let's just say Jesus is an atheist now, and who can blame him? Anyhow, great show, although you're getting a bit preachy, if you don't mind my saying. Keep up the good work. Your heavenly father, Allah. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Do you know him, then? Well, yeah, I mean, kind of. I mean, obviously, you meet these people. What's he look like, then? Well, late 60s, wiry hair, Jewish... Anyway, let's move on to the final section of tonight's lecture, how to hand the world on to the next generation, in which we look at what kind of world we're leaving to them. I am not the greatest environmentalist in the world. I've been to the environment, and it's a ghastly place where you can't get a decent cup of tea anywhere. <laughs> and it's not as if the environment is environmentally aware. We never hear volcanoes saying, oh, sometimes I wonder what we're doing to this planet. I really do. <laughs> if only we could learn to channel our lives in a productive way. Making pumice stones for developing people. <laughs> but it is the only environment we have, and we aren't half making a mess of it. And the main reason for this is that the world is run in the interests of business, and arms dealers are at the very heart of government. Now, let's take depleted uranium, used to harden shells fired by the Western Allies in the Gulf. Government scientists have told us that they have found no evidence of depleted uranium causing disease. We should detain them no longer with our questions. They clearly need to spend some time looking. And perhaps we've been thinking about this in the wrong way. Perhaps we should begin by asking ourselves, what are the chances that depleted uranium is good for us? What's the likelihood of seeing it next to depleted royal jelly in the health shop? <laughs> of course, NATO's line has been that DU is much maligned. Uh, hang on, Jerry, we're getting an email from uh, Mark Leaty. Oh, Mark Leaty, former BBC defence correspondent, turned NATO spokesman. What does he want? Dear Mr. Speaks to the Nation, 
Since I came to live here at NATO, I've felt much happier in myself. There's loads of activities, and already I've made two friends, and one of them's real. <laughs> I've also listened to extensive bedtime stories on the subject of depleted uranium, and only got scared a couple of times. Plus, they test loads of things on me, and I feel fine. Every morning, they sprinkle a little DU on my Cocoa Pops, and its yummy goodness is better than Ritalin. <laughs> We've all eaten nut cluster. Well, cluster bombs are no different. Except they take your foot off and leave your fillings intact. <laughs> Sorry to go. Bandits at two o'clock. Meow. Digga, 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 digga. Love, Mark. <laughs> He's harmless, really. This constant talking down of the lethalness of weaponry is very much a modern phenomenon. When I was a child, the Ministry of Defence owned the woods near our home. The ash ranges were ideally situated between Aldershot and Sandhurst, and the whole area was effectively under military occupation. Needless to say, violent crime was rife, but officially sanctioned as horseplay. <laughs> In any event, the first word I was able to read was danger. Regrettably, a red flag meant not that the soldiers had shot their officers and proclaimed a Soviet, but that the firing ranges were in use. And despite my facetious remarks earlier, we were expressly and gravely warned in safety lectures about what happened to boys who collected shells and bullets for fun. We all had fine collections of spent rounds, but the real prize was a bullet in its cartridge, which could be fired if you held it in your dad's vice and hit the back of it with a hammer. <laughs> These were the days before PlayStation, and we had to make our own weapons in those days. <laughs> Unexploded mortar shells were more rare, but no one tried to hide from us the fact that they could take your eye out. No one said there was no proven risk that leaving interesting-looking objects lying around means kids will pick them up. No one said the risk from bullets was present but not significant. No one said mortar shells occur naturally in pencils or Salisbury Plain, <laughs> or that we'd have to swallow four or five of them whole to be in any danger. But today, most things that are terribly dangerous seem to be introduced to us by our betters as a tremendously good idea. Then, after a bit, rare side effects are acknowledged in weaklings, infants and women. <laughs> then scientists do some more work and are divided. Then ministers get jumpy and disparities appear in their public and private utterances. Then finally the game is up and we all wait to see whether our offspring will live to furnish us with healthy grandchildren. Those of us fortunate enough to have been born with eyes can see what appear to be the results of depleted uranium in Iraq. But perhaps I'm scaremongering. Rumours spread like toxic dust on a light breeze. <laughs> Perhaps the dreadful birth defects and mutations are actually signs and wonders portending some great event. Perhaps tobacco companies have been right all along and fags are as good for children as cocaine and thalidomide. <laughs> Perhaps new variant CJD has nothing to do with meat but a curse from God like menstruation. Jeremy, are we about done? Only reception are asking if I can go and get the baby. Yeah, I think that's everything. Has she been all right? Yeah, she's been helping security tip stuff out of people's bags. But everyone's asking for their keys back now and she's swallowed them. <laughs> mm, is she okay? She's fine, but the metal detectors are going crazy. Okay, well, you run along then. Okay, cheers. All right, I'll see you in the pub. Oh, no, you can't. I'll see you in McDonald's. Gordon, any more from Mark Lady or God? Uh, no, but your daughter sent you a text message to ask if she can have a sleepover on Friday. Oh, great, so I have to watch Buffy in the kitchen again. <laughs> Rotten kids, you work your guts out. Anyway, good night, listeners, and remember, we don't inherit the world from our parents. We rent it from a building consortium. <laughs>
Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written and presented by Father of the Nation, Jeremy Hardy, and starred sister Debbie Isaac, Captain Gordon Kennedy, and the Vaughn Kennedy Family Singers. The producer was David Tyler, and the programme was a positive production for the BBC, which is not a real aunt.